For the past several months, Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the startup Theranos, has been on trial. Holmes faced 11 charges that she ran a years-long fraud scheme against investors and patients. Her company had been a Silicon Valley darling. It raised hundreds of millions on the promise that it could eliminate invasive blood tests with technology that could use just a few drops of blood. But Theranos didn't do what Holmes promised. Yesterday, after days of deliberation, the jury in the case asked to talk to the judge. Our colleague Sarah Randazzo was there. Monday was an interesting day. So all of last week, on the three days the jury deliberated, we sat around from morning till afternoon. They didn't say anything. They were just back there working. And then we get a note saying, hey, they left for the day. So we came back Monday not knowing if we were going to expect that again. And then in the morning, we got a note. And so everyone piled into the courtroom and we heard that the jury was stuck on three counts. And the judge called them all in and he read what's known as an Allen charge, or it's kind of nicknamed a dynamite charge sometimes, which is basically a a legal principle that he gives to them saying, hey, keep trying. There's no hurry, but, you know, just try a little harder to come to consensus. And they went back into the deliberation room. A few hours later, we're still stuck on these three counts. So the judge called them in again and said, if you got more time, do you think you could reach consensus? And no one raised their hand to say that would help. So he said, "Okay, go back. Give us a verdict on the ones you can. A little while later, a verdict came in. Holmes was found guilty of defrauding some of the biggest investors backing Theranos. And now she faces the possibility of years in prison. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, January 4th. Coming up on the show, the verdict in the trial of Elizabeth Holmes and what it says about Silicon Valley. It can be hard to see the challenges the people we work with are facing. Addressing these invisible struggles can make us and our companies healthier. Join Holly Robinson-Pete on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. After 15 weeks of an at-times dramatic trial, Sarah says that when the verdict came in, the atmosphere in court felt muted by comparison. We were looking at Elizabeth Holmes and her family, and it was almost as if it was a normal day of trial. Everyone was looking straight ahead, giving zero reaction. You know, sometimes when verdicts are read, you hear of people, you know, showing visible emotion one way or the other. I was looking at the back of, of Elizabeth Holmes's head, the way she sits in court. It's very hard to see her face uh, from the pews. Afterward, she did come back and hug and interact a little bit with her family, but it's still, I'd say there was not a lot of emotion in the courtroom. The verdict was mixed. The jury couldn't reach a consensus on three counts and found Holmes not guilty on four other counts, all of which involved charges that she defrauded patients. She was found guilty on the other four counts, including charges of wire fraud against three Theranos investors. It was three of the larger investments. There was one from an investor, a hedge fund in San Francisco called PFM, 
that did a $38 million um, wire transfer was the specific count in the indictment that they found her guilty of. There was also the DeVos family office uh, with a nearly $100 million investment. And then the last one was a man named Daniel Mosley, who was a trust and estate lawyer at, at the law firm Cravath, who invested his own uh, $6 million, but also we heard at trial was a key kind of linchpin where he had all these high net worth clients that he advised in his estate practice. And he connected a bunch of clients to Theranos who gave hundreds of millions of dollars more. So he was interesting where he had his own investment, but he also was this connector to all this other money. Why do you think the jury didn't find her guilty of the wire fraud charges related to patients? Yeah, we just heard a lot less about patients in the trial. It was much less built out from my perspective sitting there for all those weeks. Uh, Part of that was because of some rulings that came down from the judge ahead of trial that really limited what patients could say. They were only able to testify about a test they got and an incorrect result they thought they got, but they couldn't talk about any emotional elements of it. So the patients who took the stand were on the stand very briefly, you know, some for maybe less than half an hour, and they said, yes, I got this test. Yes, it confused me. I didn't think it was right. But they couldn't really take it to the next level and say why that mattered to them or you know, why it was scary to get a test, for instance, saying, They might be HIV positive when they weren't. And so the patient counts just weren't built out that much. So I can see how the jury maybe just felt like they didn't have enough on those counts to convict. In the trial, Holmes admitted to many of the actions witnesses testified to, but said that she hadn't intended to defraud anyone. She also said that she regretted some of her decisions, but that she wanted to help her startup grow into a successful company. And Sarah says this is why many saw Holmes's trial as a referendum on the startup industry's culture of fake it till you make it. Hearing from the investors was a real interesting part of the trial. There was uh, about half a dozen of them who took the stand. And it came out through some of them that they really didn't do much vetting at all when they put sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars into the company. Uh, A representative for the DeVos family, Betsy DeVos's family um, office, said very notably that they actually were afraid to do too much due diligence because they didn't want to upset Elizabeth Holmes and be uninvited to participate in the investing round. So things like that I felt like were pretty shocking for me being a legal reporter and not being as familiar with the investing side to say, oh, my God, they were afraid of being uninvited to give $100 million. <laughs> it's just kind of hard to, to fathom. So some things like that I thought were really interesting. So what happens from here? Yeah, so there's a few hanging threads. One, on these counts that they didn't come to agreement on, technically the government could bring those again. And then there's, of course, sentencing for the four guilty counts. Um, She'll have to file a bunch of papers. You know, both sides will file a bunch of motions. Um, There'll be a report put together by the sentencing office that comes up with their recommendations, and then all of that will go before the judge a few months from now, and he'll ultimately decide what her sentence will be. And what's the maximum sentence she could receive? So each count comes with a maximum 20-year prison sentence. So technically speaking, because there were four guilty counts, it could be 80 years. But speaking to a lot of sentencing experts, it, it seems very unlikely they would stack in that way. So really the judge could do, uh, in some senses, whatever he wants. There's there's guidelines under the federal sentencing rules, but they're not mandatory. So he can... Um, you know, take a lot of leeway, take a lot of things into account. 
when he does it. So it could even be a couple years. You know, there's a world in which he doesn't give her any prison time. There's a kind of very wide range of what we could be looking at. And she recently had a baby. Is that something that could factor into the judge's consideration? It definitely could. I, I know that people usually submit letters ahead of sentencing, giving personal reasons why leniency should be shown. I, I've seen a lot of those letters that involve people's children and, and things like that. I'm sure she will have some of those submissions from family members um, saying she's the mother of a infant. It would be a hardship for her and her family to have her in prison. Um, so I'm sure that will be something that they will bring up uh, in their own sentencing submissions. And could Holmes appeal this verdict? Yes, she can and most certainly will. I think criminal defendants virtually always appeal. And how long would that process take? It can take years. Um, appeals, criminal or civil, just take forever <laughs> for various reasons. So we're looking at a couple-year process, I think, on the appeal. And even after sentencing, the Theranos saga will go on. While Holmes may launch an appeal... Another Theranos trial is about to begin. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. When Elizabeth Holmes took the stand during her trial, she spoke extensively about her former deputy, Sonny Balwani, who's also her ex-boyfriend. Holmes said Balwani played a major role in how the company was run and how it sold itself to investors. Balwani is scheduled to go on trial next month, facing similar charges to Holmes. So he faces 12 counts, um, two conspiracy counts and 10 wire fraud counts. And so his trial is right now set for February, and it'll be interesting to see how the government might alter its evidence or witnesses or, or even if they want to drop counts or anything like that before the trial based on this jury verdict. How has Balwani responded to the charges against him? He's denied them the same way that Elizabeth Holmes did up until her trial. So, um, you know, when you take a case to trial, you're not going to concede anything before you do that. How might the outcome of Holmes's trial impact how prosecutors pursue the charges against Balwani? Yeah, I mean, there's I could see an argument being made where they'd say, OK, these patient counts didn't stick. Maybe we should just get rid of them and, and bring an investor-only uh, you know, indictment against Balwani, or they could also say, hey, these didn't stick. Let's see what we can do to bolster our evidence and, uh, you know, make it more robust for Balwani's trial. So I feel like they'll definitely do something around those patient counts to try to get a different outcome in Balwani's case. Um, it just seems like the obvious reaction you would have if, uh, you know, because of this jury saying 
they didn't buy into any of the patient counts. The charges that Balwani faces and that Holmes was found guilty of were related to wire fraud and promises to investors. So what do you think this case says about the way startups raise money? I think it shows that a lot of investors are not doing much diligence because they're so excited to get in on the next big thing. And I think that's probably been the case for decades and will continue to be the case going forward. A lot of investors just want to get their money in what's going to be the next big IPO or the next big company. And there's so many startups out there that I think sometimes money is thrown at them without people fully knowing what they're capable of doing. Sarah says that other startup founders may be watching the verdict here to take lessons for their own companies. Yeah, I mean, I think any case like this has some kind of takeaways. You say, wow, what happened here? Let's make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, what can we take away from this? I think the big lesson for me is just when you have a startup that involves healthcare and people, you need to be careful. You can't roll things out in a pharmacy that aren't ready to be rolled out. It's different than rolling out a website or a shopping site that isn't quite ready. So I think the biggest takeaways for me are around life sciences and and healthcare startups and just trying to be careful with people's health. And do you think it will lead to any changes in the way Silicon Valley approaches life science companies or those kinds of investments? Yeah, I'm sure that life sciences startups that are out there getting off the ground now will try to make sure their science is robust and try to show in as many ways as possible that they do have strong science behind their inventions when they are out fundraising, because I'm sure this will be weighing on their minds a little bit of, okay, what can we say to show that we're really Um, doing what we say we're doing and, and can back up these claims we're making. And this is a criminal case against Elizabeth Holmes, but does it create a legal line for investors and investment? Sort of like when does talking up a startup cross the line into deceiving investors? I certainly think some startup founders will look at this and say, okay, what did Elizabeth Holmes do? Are we doing anything similar? And if so, let's not do that. I do think a lot of Silicon Valley startups also see this as distinct and they say, oh, well, we're not doing anything like that. This was a one-off case. So I think people will read into it what they want to read into it um, and, and try to distinguish themselves from Theranos as much as they can. I think a lot of people will try to say that this was very particular and that Elizabeth Holmes did things to a degree that normal startup founders don't do and that this really was such a particular set of circumstances and she had, um, you know, she kind of went so far out on a limb that it was really, um, you know, really an indictment of her and not of Silicon Valley overall. That's all for today, Tuesday, January 4th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Heather Somerville and Christopher Weaver. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.